The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. show of the Restoration Radio Network. I am Stephen Heiner. I'm joined today uh, by Father, joined with, joined by Father Anthony Chicado, St. Gertrude the Great, Associate Pastor. Um, Father, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Uh, no further short notice, but um, we had uh, run across a topic and we wanted to hear your commentary on it. Uh, for those listeners uh, who have not heard the news story that we're going to be covering today, uh, the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate, one of the, the many different branches of uh, the Franciscan order, uh, a conservative, you could say a conservative uh, branch, has over the years developed and grown to about 130 priests, which in our day and age for a brand new congregation, it's I, not very old at all. Uh, and as some conservatives do, started to come towards the traditional Latin mass, on July the 11th, which is the Novus Ordo Feast of St. Benedict, uh, Francis, decided his first, Francis decided to have his first pushback on the policies of uh, Benedict the 16th and suppressed this order's permission to say the traditional Latin Mass. And, Father, you know, when I, when I heard this news story, I thought about the fact that you had... Uh, first coined the term Motu Mass back in 2007. And and actually, in your article, which I'm, I'm going to post on Twitter here in a little bit, uh, called the Motu Mass Trap, you talk about, you know, what the implications of getting permission to say the Latin Mass, uh, what those implications are. And I actually think that has a lot of bearing on our story. So I wanted to take you back to that article, if you don't mind, and Sure. And, and kind of and kind of walk us through it so that uh, we can use that to gain insight into this current news story. Sure. Well, in 2007, uh, Benedict XVI issued this uh, famous motu proprio uh, papal document called Summorum Pontificum, and in that document he. Uh, as it were, liberated the use of the of a form of the old mass, the traditional Latin mass. He permitted uh, clergy all over the world, whoever uh, chose to do so, to use the 1962 missal, which was the last form of the Trinitan mass before the changes of Vatican II. And what he did is he designated the old rite to be the extraordinary form of the Roman rite. And the new mass he referred to as the ordinary form. He had to solve somehow the uh, seeming contradiction that Catholics of the Roman rite uh, somehow had two rites for the Mass. So there was the ordinary and the extraordinary form. And he gave this uh, permission to any priest in the world to use the, the 62 Missal. And the conditions were very favorable toward priests who wanted to do this. So this gave a push in the post-Vatican II Church, a big push to the 
traditional Latin Mass, and it allowed um, those who were involved in the post-Vatican II Church to uh, compare the old rite and to uh, to compare that with the new rite. So it was sort of a, a uh, watershed. So he uh, allowed this, declared that it was uh, permissible. People took it up. And now it seems that that permission is starting to be taken away for the members of the post-Vatican II Church. Well, and I, I suppose that's a very problem in the beginning, isn't it? If you give a permission for something, you can take it away. I, I, you, you know that yourself, Father, run, uh, helping to run a parish, that uh, sometimes permissions have to be taken away. Sure, that, that's exactly it. it. It was something that he... Uh, could permit, as theoretically the Supreme Legislator, and it's something which a successor of his, as the presumptive Supreme Legislator as well, could take away and change. So it is not a some sort of a, a perpetually uh, established right. Uh, the Supreme Legislator in the Church can give and he can take away. For those of you who are interested in asking Father some questions, um, we're going to open up the phone lines. We're just doing a short show tonight. Again, this is a relevant news topic. We wanted to get Father to comment on it. Father um, is considered a worldwide expert on the liturgy and his mass, work of human hands, uh, theological critique of the mass of Paul VI has been widely commented on uh, from everywhere from your conservative blogs um, all the way to some, some people who are close to the Vatican. And so uh, if you are someone who attends a Motu Mass, someone who has any connection to the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate, uh, or even if you go to a Society of St. Pius X Mass, or um, we especially want, would like to hear from you, obviously we're, we're happy to hear from any caller, but we, we'd like to know, um, we'd like to hear from people who might be personally affected by this decree and, and what they think this means for them, because Father, I think people might look at this and say, oh, let me give that number out, 949-272-9417. Again, that is 949-272-9417. We'll also take questions on our Twitter stream. If you just mention our handle, at True Restoration, in your Twitter message, I'll be able to see the question there. And, Father, some of the questions that some of those callers might have would say, they might say, well, Father, how will this really affect us? I mean, I'm not a member of the Franciscan Friar of the Immaculate. I don't attend any of their Masses. So surely my Motu Mass is not on the chopping block, is it? Well, I would say that it's it could very well be the nose of the camel in the tent. If you look at the liturgical style of, of Francis uh, Bergoglio, you see that his uh, he is not interested in uh, traditional liturgical practices. In fact, uh, recently, uh, very recently, in his uh, speech to the bishops of the uh, South American, uh, the Latin American Conference of, of Bishops in, in Rio, uh, before he left, uh, he criticized restorationists, he called them, that's just his word for traditionalists, as uh, Pelagians, which is a, um, uh, followers of a fourth century heresy. Uh, but uh, he spoke very specifically about them being attached to outmoded forms, forms that have been surpassed and that don't speak to the men of our age. That, I think, is a very significant comment, especially when you put it on the table with this action of rolling back, in one instance, at least, the general permission that Benedict XVI gave for the old rite of the Mass. So we can see from his comment to the bishops' conferences that we can see his mentality and sort of the principle that he's operating on. He looks upon these these old forms of worship as outmoded and incapable of speaking to the man of our age. So he has a different vision for this. So this very well could uh, uh, portend uh, future changes 
specifically with regard to the permission for the uh, old mass. Well, and, and Father, as a restorationist myself, I mean, I've been called all kinds of names, but Pelagian, that's definitely a new one for me. So, uh, uh, Same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you would I be think, called, I think, a true restorationist. Touche, <laughs> touche. So. Um, I, think, I think one of the things that you talked about in your uh, Motu Mass Trap article, which I've linked to on Twitter, is that there are both positive and negative aspects to this. So I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, Father Chicada, he's a, a Latin, he's a traditional Latin mass person, he's instead of a concept, so he's gonna just he's gonna be gloomy about anything that comes out of the Vatican. And I, and I think what was interesting was you actually said that the Motu had some positive aspects to it. Which I think some people again, they'd be surprised to hear you say anything positive about anything coming out from the Vatican. So can you walk us through a couple of things that at the time and I I want to point this out to people Father wrote this article in 2007, so this isn't some Johnny-come-lately analysis. Father saw these things in 2007, and I think that's why his commentary is so relevant. So some of the positive things that came from that document, Father, or that you, you saw in that document? Well, the first thing is that I saw it as really uh, an admission of failure for the liturgical reform, because I lived during the days that the liturgical reforms were uh, being introduced. And there was this this idea of optimism that this new Mass of Paul VI was going to fix uh, all the problems in the church, was going to attract uh, more people to the Mass, help them to understand it uh, better. Uh, And... There was also this idea that it was was something that was going to be a big step forward. We weren't going to take a step back again, but that we were going to go forward with this new right. It was going to be such such an improvement for the church. And I think Paul VI said in his one of his speeches introducing the. Uh, new mass, and I quote this at the end of my book, Work of Human Hands. He said that we should not speak of a new mass, but we should speak of a new age. So there was this this idea of optimism. But as the effects of Vatican II wore on, and as the uh, new mass came to be celebrated in in uh, different parts of the world. Uh, there were many people who started to believe that they were missing something, uh, missing something uh, very important. And when they began to compare the uh, old rite of the Mass with the new Mass, this new Mass for new age, they found the latter lacking. And what uh, Benedict XVI himself uh, did Uh, in a number of his books and lectures, he criticized certain significant aspects of the official liturgical reforms. And almost one could say sort of led uh, a movement to uh, restore uh, at least some elements of the old way of worship. So the when he got into to a position where he could do something about this, he uh, allowed the new Mass, and I think it was an admission of failure, that the liturgical reform of Vatican II, the official reforms, didn't work out as they were supposed to. And uh, there, there were grave deficiencies. So even on the, the part of those who were fully paid-up members of the post-Vatican II Church, I think it was an admission of uh, a failure. Well, and when you when you look at admitting that failure, um, Benedict's election was seen by those people as you know there's someone in our camp here who's going to be in our corner, and this is a very I suppose it wasn't a, a very public repudiation in the fact that it only has now hit the news news waves and it happened on July the 11th so mm-hmm. it's something that wasn't splashed all over probably because it, it's not as uh, much of a concern for the, the mainstream let's say Vatican watcher media but it's it's a very significant piece of news I, I don't think I think it'd be a real stretch to say that 
uh, Francis accidentally or coincidentally picked the Feast of St. Benedict as a day to issue the decree. But then again, uh, I, I think Bishop Sanborn categorized him as a loose canon. Uh, perhaps he, he, didn't, he didn't keep track of that at all, and maybe we're reading into that. Oh, he was a Jesuit. He probably didn't even know what feast day it was. <laughs> no. it's, 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 for those of you who don't know, uh, Father Chicada is a, a former Cistercian, so those sorts of, uh, of pod shots at other religious orders are par for the course of Father. You, you have to take uh, shots at the Jesuits every once in a while for being non-liturgical. <laughs> that, that's part of it. Um, on the... Um, On other aspects of, of uh, the motu mass and, and this permission, uh, other characteristics of the permission was that it, it removed the stigma from being in favor of the old mass. In the 70s, we were regarded as, as totally crazy for thinking there was anything wrong with the liturgical reform and that we should uh, advocate the uh, having the old rights of mass restored. So the modu definitely removed uh, that stigma. It uh, also, I think, had the effect of allowing people to compare one right with the other uh, and uh, see the, the differences and see the, the deficiencies in the new right very clearly when uh, compared with what they saw and the the old rite uh, once it was officially permitted. So those certainly were, uh, I think, positive aspects of the uh, motu proprio of Benedict the Sixteenth. So, when you say removing the stigma, and now you're not crazy, I mean, does this mean you've sort of reverted to being crazy when the permission's been taken away? You know. <laughs> I know that you thought that you were going to get the Latin Mass, but I want you to understand, again, it was a temporary permission. Uh, the temporary permission was under a previous so-called pontiff. I, I am the pontiff now, and I do not permit this. Um, what, when, I, I'm going to take us back to the question that I, I sort of begged at the beginning of the show, Father. Does this necessarily mean that someone's Latin Mass is on the chopping block. If they're if they're feeling, you know, before that they were crazy, as you were saying, there was a stigma. They wanted the Latin Mass, and then they actually became the vogue, and the new liturgical movement that advertises fiddleback vestments, and everybody's talking about the Latin Mass. And now, now it might become unpopular again. Well, certainly with. The progressives like uh, Bergoglio, it's uh, unpopular, and those who who follow uh, his line. And I see difficult uh, days for uh, people in the new church who uh, are attached to the old rites. But uh, that's something that time will tell. But I, it, for me, it seems very clear because he he's laid down the principle that all of this is. Uh, an expression of outmoded cultural forms and, and uh, Pelagianism. And he, he is a, well, theoretically, he is a, a, a progressive, and progressives are supposed to be liberal and uh, supposed to allow for all sorts of diversity and variety. In reality, he seems more of the stripe of the uh, progressive Stalinist who wants to uh, impose his ideas uh, from the top down or using some uh, some other mechanism that would get the desired effect. And I can see him doing that. I can see him doing that. Do you think we'd go so far as to see a, a count? Uh, there, was, there was such a thing as a counter syllabus in uh, Gaudium et Spes, so would we see a, a counter motu, um, a sort of abrogate I'm not going to say it correctly, abrogating document. I was going to say abrogatory. But is it, it, could we see a motu that wipes out a previous motu? Theoretically, that you too could. Far? Theoretically, you could, because he's the supreme legislator. And he could clip the wings uh, of um, 
different religious orders or congregations, uh, as he, he did with the Franciscans of the Immaculate, to force them to accept uh, different uh, uh, stipulations and, and changes to uh, force them, say, occasionally to offer the new Mass, which would be, I imagine, uh, quite insupportable to many of the people who have joined these organizations uh, since they've been founded and since the Moto has, has given this widespread permission for the traditional Mass. So that's one way he could do it. Uh, another way, I think, would be tied in with his uh, vision of ecclesiastical governance. He talked about this uh, as well, and gave all sorts of hints as to the principles he was operating on in his uh, address to the South American bishops again, uh, the same address in which he condemned us as Pelagians. He uh, spoke there uh, very favorably of the uh, idea of a church that runs uh, from the bottom up rather than uh, the top down. He had in mind this this idea of that was popular among leftists uh, in uh, South America and liberation uh, theologians. This idea of base communities and the uh, a, a sort of grassroots democracy. That the at higher level than that, uh, he speaks about. Um, uh, what he calls synodality, uh, in other words, having uh, different deliberative bodies that presumably would um, uh, enact legislation in different countries and uh, perhaps even for the whole uh, the whole world, some sort of a Roman synod as well. So what I could see happening if since that is very much his uh, idea. Uh, and principle for church governance, I could see him taking the question of uh, whether or not one may use the um, old rite of mass and saying that, well, the synod that I've established in America, the synod of, of American bishops, will decide how this is going to be applied because they're closer to the grassroots and they're closer to the, the voice of the Holy Spirit that they hear in the people of God. And of course, we know what the effects of something like that would be. The, the uh, tendency of, of these uh, deliberative assemblies to introduce different changes. And I think that that is a possibility uh, for a scenario how this uh, de facto universal permission could be withdrawn. Well, I, I, I agree with you, um, Father. I think if you go back to the idea of what you and Bishop Sanborn touched on in the show in which we, uh, the very first show that we talked about uh, his election, uh, this is very much the idea of the Bishop of Rome crowdsourcing some of his decisions like an executive would. If this is just a job, which you can resign from, apparently, then you you can outsource some of your work and allow... Uh, those of like-minded, um, those of like-minded persuasion to help you further your agenda. I, we were talking in the pre-show about something very interesting that you mentioned about who um, Francis's cooperator in this particular cause was with in relation to the Franciscans. And before I let Father comment on that, I want to give the number out again: nine four nine two seven two nine four one seven. Again, that number is nine four nine. Two seven two nine four one seven. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to an abbreviated version of our regular True Restoration show on the Restoration Radio Network. We're commenting on the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate uh, removal, the removal of their permission to say the traditional Latin Mass, what the implications are for them, and what they are for anyone who's interested in attending the traditional Latin Mass within the diocesan structures of the organization they recognize as the Catholic Church. And, Father, to go back to the point uh, before I had uh, given out the phone number, you had mentioned something interesting about who 
Francis's cooperator was on this particular mission. Um, and what's yes, the relationship with the Franciscans? Um, so the uh, Vatican issued a, a decree uh, implementing this this uh, idea that the uh, old form of the Mass was to be celebrated in the Franciscans of the Immaculate uh, only with special permission. So the decree was signed by the cardinal, who is the head of the congregation, and then the secretary of the congregation. Now, the, the, uh, by congregation, we mean like a papal department that has a certain uh, responsibility in church law. The, theoretically, these entities have uh, a um, have a head who is always a cardinal or a prefect. Then they have a secretary who actually runs the day-to-day work of the congregation, who organizes uh, the documents, uh, sees that they're prepared, that they're in proper proper form, and so on. The secretary to this congregation was a um, Archbishop Rodriguez Carballo. Now, very significantly, he was the former head of the uh, regular Franciscan order. He was the minister general of the regular Franciscans, uh, and he was a a very close buddy of Cardinal Bergoglio's Bergoglio's, uh, before his election. He had a reputation as a progressive and uh, a liberal. He studied at the uh, uh, Modernist Biblical Institute and so on. So he was the one who ended up putting together the decree for an organization for which obviously he had little use, the Franciscans of the Immaculate, or or at least so it would seem, because the... my understanding is that the whole spirituality and internal discipline of the Franciscans of the Immaculate and their piety and everything was very much pre-Vatican II. And they had uh, uh, they, they adopted the um, uh, traditional Mass when that became uh, possible uh, when it became possible for them to do so. So that they embodied two um, uh, two features that this uh, uh, the secretary of the congregation, Rodriguez Carballo, would have had no interest in and probably would have been violently opposed to had someone tried to uh, pull that in the Friars Minor, in his, the Franciscan order of which he was the head. Mm. Well, I think what's what's most interesting about this particular case, Father, that that's a fascination for those of us who are watching it unravel is this is not an organization like the fraternity of St. Peter who came in saying, this is, this is who we are. We're Latin mass people. Uh, and it seems for now it's sort of left in place that, well, if you came in as a Latin mass person, we're going to let you keep it for now. Uh, but don't think that those of you who didn't come in with this special requirement can move to it. It's it's sort of a uh, a wall that's been put in place. You you can develop the liturgy in other ways. You can't just develop backwards. That would be too restorationist and Pelagian. What one uh, what one suspects, in fact, what uh, what is certain, is that the large influx of members into the Franciscans of the Immaculate was a more or less direct result of their practice of using primarily the old rite. That it was this that that uh, drew young men into the order. In fact, you could see the uh, pictures of um, uh, different uh, events, international congresses, or celebrations of the traditional Latin Mass, especially in Rome, there are loads of these Franciscans of the Immaculate uh, functioning in the ceremonies. It's very distinctive because of the the uh, gray habit that they wear, men who are part of this organization. And they're all young guys, and uh, apparently the reason for which they entered was the traditional piety of the order, and it seems the old liturgy as well. But uh, now that is uh, something that's 
being taken away from them and that they're told they need special permission for. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to True Restoration on the Restoration Radio Network. My name is Stephen Heiner. I'm here with Father Anthony Chicada, and we've been discussing the implications of the, you could say, change for the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate and the fact that they will no longer be allowed to say the Latin Mass without explicit permission. Father, I asked you about some of the positive aspects of the modu proprio in the article you wrote, the modu mass trap. There's also some some negative aspects, and I know that you didn't explicitly foresee something a situation like this happening. But I think that there's some relevant uh, negative points that you brought out in that article that apply to this situation. Um, what what do you think is is relevant that that you could comment add on here? Again, for those who haven't read the article, I posted it on Twitter. It's well worth a read. It's not very long. Um, and it, you'll you'll get to hear all of Father's points of view, but you just wanted to pick a couple things that you wanted to focus on, Father. Yes, um, the uh, one considerable difficulty with it is that it puts the uh, traditional mass and the new mass pr- uh, on the same level. There are uh, two. For, seen as two forms of the Roman rite, Benedict XVI says explicitly that they have they express the same faith, the same doctrinal content. And those of us who have studied the issue, of course, know that that's absolutely false. It's not true. There are a whole bunch of doctrinal differences between the two systems. By uh, giving this uh, permission, however, and making both of these rites in effect. Uh, equivalent. This, I think, was to draw, the effect of this was to draw many people into an attitude of uh, subjectivism. That is to say that I am uh, adhering to the uh, traditional Latin Mass basically because I like it, or basically because there's some sort of an, uh, there's an aesthetic attraction for it, or it it does something personal for me. One gets the impression that there are many people who assist at the um, uh, these approved masses who have that attitude. That it is a, a good uh, it's a good choice for me. This is why it appeals to me, and um, they become blinded to the other great issues, as it were, of the, of the church. It's reduced to a matter of taste. Admittedly, too, there are uh, others in, uh, who go to the motu mass who do not see it that way, who you know would not be caught dead at a celebration of the new mass. I've encountered many people like that. So, but the difficulty is that when you get in the system, uh, you end up being co-opted by this subjectivism. In the uh, speeches uh, that uh, Ratzinger uh, gave when he was um, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and very much involved in promoting conservative liturgical practices, the speeches he gave and and, um, many other of the cardinals who were involved, what they they emphasized is uh, the idea that, well, the traditional mass is something that um, appeals to many people, appeals to their sensibilities. It has this this richness, this connection with a tradition. Um, one of the priests who was involved in preparing the document for Benedict the Sixteenth said that the this permission actually was an extension of of options. JP2, uh, in a, a speech to the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter, which was one of the groups that benefited from uh, uh, Benedict XVI's uh, permission, ultimately, JP2 uh, himself spoke of uh, the how much this adds to diversity. So 
those are the the, the terms of the uh, modernist theological system that you have appeals to not to truth but to sentiment and to how things affect me interiorly so i think that 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 subjectivism is one of the unfortunate aspects of it and then along with that too is is uh, the idea that effectively you're saying that the two the two rights uh, are equal well as i as said to you on more than one occasion i i wish that ex- extraordinary would denote that it it's the better right but but in the way that uh the way that the Novus Ordo is set up and the fact that they have an entire season called Ordinary Time, I think Ordinary is actually considered better in, in the Novus Ordo. Yes, I think so as well. Uh, but then that would give too much uh, a pat on the back to uh, those ladies in the Novus Ordo who are extraordinary ministers, if you <laughs> interpret it a little bit too positively. So... Father, what was your what was your reaction when you first ran across this story? What what went what was the sort of the first reaction you had when you saw it? Well, having been a, a member of a religious order, I certainly can see a, a little bit of the problem that you had, in effect, two factions within the same organization who had uh, ideas that seemed to be radically opposed to each other. So it was a, a uh, so it was a, a situation where, under any uh, conditions or any circumstances, uh, someone would have had to have intervened and uh, to separate the warring factions and arrive at some sort of a, uh, a compromise or a modus vivendi for the two parties. So you can. Uh, certainly see that in the story you can see the internal conflict in the organization the uh, founder uh, father stefano uh, had a reputation as a very devout man and he was apparently the one in the organization who was really encouraging and pushing the use of the old uh, rights the whole old system uh, and but uh, you had other members of the order who simply didn't want it. So it struck me, first of all, as, as a situation that uh, had to be resolved. And that's that's a point that other uh, commentators on this with, uh, you know, no, um, no horse in the race, uh, as it were, uh, have made. Uh, I think Monsignor Wadsworth, who is the head of ICEL, who was very favorable to many traditionalist causes. I think he made that point, and that's certainly true. But that's not the whole story. The uh, If you had a, had a conflict, sure, it would have to be resolved, but the way in which this particular conflict was re- resolved was in, to my way of thinking, a very brutal manner. Uh, instead of... Uh, arriving at uh, some sort of a um, compromise that would keep the parties separated, the uh, decree came down that, well, only the Novus Ordo could be used. And the use of the traditional right required special permission. And that seemed to me uh, to be a sign that this was part of a larger program. If it had been merely a question of resolving a conflict in the religious order, there would have been another way to resolve the liturgical question. But to say that you outlaw one right, uh, in effect, unless there's a special permission, and impose the same right, the Novus Ordo, on everyone else, that is overkill, and I think it was intentional. You know, it's interesting that you mention that as a practical issue, Father, because I, I think uh, I might have told you this story before, but you know that I went to high school with the Norbertines um, out mm-hmm. in California when, when I was in the Nova Sordo, and I got to know the new abbot that was elected there uh, probably a couple years before I left, and he mentioned that there there was definitely a problem, because I, I had asked him, why 
I know that nine of your, I don't know at the time, 37 priests only celebrate the traditional mass when they celebrate their private masses. Would the conventional mass, which is the community mass, would you ever do that? And his first immediate answer, of course, he's answering as a canon regular. For our listeners who don't know what a canon is, their special charge is the divine office. And so he answered like a canon. He said, well, Stephen, uh, what are we going to do with the office? And that was his immediate answer was, since the office is the most important thing for our order, the feasts are wrong. The way that we say the office is completely different. They're on a different calendar. I even mentioned that the Feast of St. Benedict in the Novus Ordo is a different date than the one for the traditional. So, yes, there's a practical split from the very beginning that you not only have priests who are on different, let's say, theological wavelengths, but they're on different practical wavelengths. People are on using different uh, offices for different days. And, and I think this kind of gets us back to the heart of the issue that if Benedict did this to accommodate the old fuddy-duddies like us, who, you know, were real attached to the Latin Mass, then at some point, and Benedict hinted at this, you're going to have to be regularized, and that might mean updating your 1962 missile to the 2013 missile. It might mean inserting a new Good Friday prayer. But you're going to, we're not going to leave you out on that island. Eventually, we're going to build a peninsula so that you can be integrated in with the new church and all that, that, all that comes with that. And I think this, if, this, if there's any good from this, I think it's a real either warning shot or, or a slap in the face, perhaps, to those who think that they're going to get formal permission from the modern Vatican to stay out as their own unregulated island, that they're going to have to be asked to make, um, shall we say, sacrifices. Yes, and uh, the uh, issue that you raised, it's uh, interesting about the recitation of the Divine Office and then the Mass, how if you use the traditional Mass for one thing and uh, the, uh, the new Divine Office for the other, you'd come up with something completely separate. I believe that that was, in fact, one of the issues that uh, was... Uh, raised in this dispute among the Franciscans of the Immaculate, that uh, uh, many of them were used to saying the Liturgy of the Hours, which is, uh, for those who are not aware of it, is the post-Vatican II version of the Divine Office, which is much shorter and, again, has a completely different calendar and a completely different structure. So those who uh, were used to that naturally uh, objected and, and had difficulties when it uh, came to changing their changing the divine office as well. Yeah, the, the old office has an old has an entirely different hour that was suppressed. So uh, people were used to not saying prime. Now they've got to add add more work. I definitely don't want to make uh, the divine office any longer than it has to be. I suppose, Father. Um, sure. Uh, what thou must do, do quickly, I think. <laughs> the um, uh, In uh, researching a little bit for the show, uh, I came across a um, uh, blog by Taylor Marshall, who uh, is a convert to the Novus Ordo, uh, who generally writes a sort of conservative blog entries. Uh, his blog, I think, is called... It doesn't indicate here what it's called, but he, in any event, was associated with the Franciscans of the Immaculate. And he says that one of the Franciscans uh, in the United States uh, expressed his concern that the order was um, uh, becoming a radical uh, traditionalist operation that uh, they were sipping from the radical traditionalist Kool-Aid. Um, I don't know. I haven't had Kool-Aid myself for quite a while, so I'm not exactly sure what that would be like. But he also he associated, managed to associate the celebration of the traditional Mass with uh, all sorts of uh, no-nos in the new church. So he lists the um, denial of the Holocaust, the denial of Vatican II as a, a valid council, 
them adopting the rhetorical style of the Rorate Chaley blog, the embrace of an isolationist subculture of Catholicism or uh, Amish Catholicism, uh, the denial of the charismatic gifts and the uh, charismatic movement, uh, sympathy for Bishop Williamson's style of traditionalism, uh, disdain for Pope John Paul and Pope Francis, uh, a belief that Latin Mass Catholics are uh, the A-team and Novus Ordo Catholics are the B-team, and Gnostic ecclesiology, that traditionalists form the one true invisible church. So these were the ideas that uh, this priest apparently tried to associate with the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. So, For those who want to read the article that Father's talking about, you can find it at taylormarshall.com. Taylor spelled the regular way, Marshall spelled with two L's. The blog's called Canterbury Tales. Uh, clearly, Mr. Marshall doesn't uh, drink Kool-Aid either. He spelled it correctly, C-O-O-L. Kool-Aid, and we all we all know that Kool-Aid spelled with a K. Um, what do you think of some of these uh, accusations, the rhetorical style of the Rorate Chaley blog? Um, Serious stuff. When I read this list, I, I thought that uh, if the Franciscans of the Immaculate started to adopt uh, all of these positions within five years of uh, adopting the extraordinary form, it's uh, uh, really a testament to the power of Catholic worship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that this is, this is a whole new meaning to Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. Yes, yes, it does. Um, if, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a very interesting list uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, this... Uh, um, uh, Father Geiger would associate all of these ideas with the celebration of the uh, traditional Latin Mass. And who knows, I mean, uh, perhaps it is true that some of the uh, uh, good friars, having been exposed to the traditional liturgy, decided to investigate some of the other questions about uh, Vatican II and the ideas that prompted the traditional liturgy. In which case, I would put that on the side of it being one of the good effects of the motu proprio mass because it um, brought about in people the uh, an awareness of some real problems, some real difficulties. Uh, I was uh, as as you were as you were sharing that, Father. I was reading the last one of the last lines here of the of the piece, and it says. Um, if you love the Latin Mass, remember that Latin Mass people are the greatest enemies of the Latin Mass movement. And again, I, I think it's very interesting to use as a term movement here. I love the Latin mm -hmm. Mass. However, if I were Pope Francis and read the comments at Rorate Chaley, I'd be tempted to shut it all down. It looks sinful and disgusting from the outside. Uh, keep a lock on your lips and stay out of tratty online forums or blogs. Pray more, complain less. I, I don't have any problem with praying more and and, uh, and complaining less. I think I do think there are some paper tigers that uh, Mr. Mr. Marshall puts here in his blog. I think so. There are, there are actually uh, quite a few. Uh, the uh, but it, it is an interesting comment that his his uh, strong vis visceral reaction to the. Um, uh, comments against this particular uh, decree. If I were Pope Francis, I'd uh, want to shut everything down. Well, I mean, that is, you know, that's always a possibility. He could actually decide to do that. Uh, but um, I think Mr. Marshall probably really doesn't uh, understand all of the different issues that uh, are at play here, especially with the traditional mass versus the uh, new mass. Whereas I think many of his targets probably do. I think, uh, Father, you remember some time ago you mentioned that movie uh, Catholics with uh, yes. Martin Sheen. And uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Carrington, Dr. Carrington's calling us from Michigan, and he has a, a question about that. Is that uh, is that correct, Dr. Carrington? Yes. Hello, Doctor. Go ahead. Yes. How Go are ahead you? With your question. 
Hi. The, uh, the, when I, I recall, that movie began very gallantly with the traditional mass. They were like, like on a, off the ocean, and it's just a very beautiful uh, scene. And then uh, the decree came down for the religious order to adapt the new mass. And it's almost like Francis has uh, looked at that movie and thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and I think that that's basically what's happening here. It's a, it's a, it's a replay of some something that's occurred before, shall we say, in fiction, but now it's in reality. Well, those were well, certainly they- the ideas that were around in the 60s and 70s. That's why, it, it uh, for me, it really hit home. Uh, because it came out as a, it came out as a novel by Brian Moore, and then it came out as either a movie or uh, a made-for-TV movie, something like that. Yes. And the ideas that were uh, being expressed by the modernist visitor to the monastery, and I think it was uh, on a fictional island off of Ireland called Muck, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And the ideas of the visitor were very similar to things that I had been taught in the seminary. And, yes. Uh, so so I, I found it very plausible and very realistic that something like this could happen. I also found it uh, something that hit rather close to home because at that point I was interested in uh, entering a uh, monastery in the United States, a monastery of the Cistercian Order that had the um, that retained the Latin for absolutely everything. Even though we had the New no, Mass, we had the mm-hmm. Latin for uh, everything apart from that. So it, it was, um, in that sense, it was true to life. But yes, you are right. It would seem that um, someone was reading this and was inspired by it. <laughs> yes, I, I just wanted to just make one other comment. The individuals who were responsible for me finding the, the traditional mass, uh, I, I called them very recently, and I was just absolutely amazed that they, of course, have uh, adopted to the uh, was that the Motu uh, type uh, arrangement, and and they uh, have rejected the uh, the traditional mass, even though uh, they had the the full benefits that I had, or even more so. And they even they even had me reading the Great Sacrilege, which uh, uh, Father Wathen had written uh, about oh, things. Yes, and it's just ironic that that this has happened because I wonder what they may be thinking today. That's that was just my thought. I'm well, thanks too. thanks for the call, Doctor Carrington. Yes, thank you, Doctor. Uh, part of the uh, problem for the last point that he mentioned is that. Uh, while many traditionalists um, from the old days like that who read books like The Great Sacrilege uh, and who read, read um, uh, Patrick Omler's book Questioning the Validity and other uh, important traditionalist tracts, uh, never really um, uh, arrived at the conclusion that the uh, problems in the post-Vatican II Church were more than just the, the question of the math that there are larger theological problems. And uh, so I myself have seen people like that, in effect, go back to the New Mass because they didn't understand the larger theological problems. Yeah, and I think, I think that it's interesting. One of our, one of our comments from, from uh, Twitter comes from somebody who's a, who's a convert. His name's Michael. He says... Uh, true restoration, I'm a convert, and how I wish the church was traditional as it once was, I miss it, although I never experienced it. Uh, I, I definitely, Michael, I could speak to that. I mean, I was, I never experienced it either. Father Chicada, you know, he's part of the uh, the generation that is passing. Uh, hopefully not too soon, Father. Uh, but uh, that <laughs> it is, depends on who that, you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> that um, actually witnessed the pre-Vatican II Church and and knew what what the church was like. I guess the only point I would make to you is 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 the Novus Ordo Church the Catholic Church? Because when you make a statement that I wish the church was traditional as it once was, I, I want you to examine that that sentence and look back and say, well, what do you mean by that? And are you certain that that is the Catholic Church or? might this be a really confusing time and might you have to look deeper for the Catholic Church than what appears on the surface. 
Good point. Good point. Although you would be uh, accused, Stephen, I think, of reaching for the Kool-Aid at that uh, at this juncture. <laughs> the, well, as long uh, as it's great Kool-Aid, I'm okay with it. <laughs> but the uh, Michael makes a, a very interesting point, or, or reflects, I think, what is a very interesting phenomenon is that uh, there are many young people who never experience anything of the life of the pre-Vatican II Church, who simply by reading and researching come to the conclusion that there's a radical difference between what they read about as having existed before and what they see in front of their eyes in uh, the average Novus Ordo Church these days. And it's it's uh, something that I suppose purely from a human point of view is extraordinary, but that's how divine grace operates sometimes. And uh, there are many people like Michael that I've met over the years, just in my little apostolate, who have uh, come to the conclusion that there really is this um, uh, contradiction between old and new, that there is no continuity, and that um, uh, they wish there was and would hope to do something about it. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to True Restoration on the Restoration Radio Network. This is uh, episode 26, and Father Anthony Chicada has been our guest tonight for our show on the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate and the situation they find themselves in now after uh, being told by Francis through intermediaries that they are no longer allowed to say the traditional Latin Mass, which, as we know, is one of the worst things you can do in your life um, without special permission. And, Father, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's been a long day for you, I'm sure, and it was late, and uh, we managed to, to have the show on, on rather short notice, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about regarding... Uh, the situation that, that you reflected on as you were preparing for today's show or as you reflected on this entire situation that you wanted to share with our listeners? I would say just simply this. I, I think that uh, it is very possible that it um, uh, portends a uh, some sort of future crackdown by Francis on uh, people who uh, are attached to the old Latin Mass and uh, that it is something that I think could very easily happen, and uh, I think it's something that people should not be surprised by, given the statements that he's, he's made. It's, it's something that I think pre-intones the future. Well, if you'd like to read more about Father Chicada's work, not just on the liturgy, um, which I put a link to in the show description, there's a link to Father's book on the Mass, um, one of our callers uh, mentioned The Great Sacrilege, and that was part of the, I would say, the first generation of books, including Dr. Uh, Dr. Elmore, Henry, uh, Patrick Henry Elmore, um, uh, God rest his soul, uh, who was part of the first reaction. Now, there are differing qualities, but I think that Father Chicada benefits from coming, I would say, the second movement of these books and re- in, in light of what he commented on, this second wave of people, people who've had a chance to calmly assess the situation, Father, from the aspect of someone who's actually lived through it. And you'll find the work uh, very scholarly. If reading a 450-page, well-footnoted book uh, seems intimidating to you, you can go to youtube.com. And uh, I think it's forward slash work of human hands, Father, is that right? Oh, I should have memorized the the address, but if you look for work of human hands, uh, you'll find Father on YouTube. You'll and, find it, and he's got a series of videos on there. And and, and start there. Some of you may have heard our show today who've never heard our show, and I think Father Jakarta brings up some important questions. If you are attending the so-called extraordinary form of the mass, you owe it to yourself to ask, "How did you get here? How did it come to be called extraordinary? And and where did it all start?" And and why is the Novus Ordo considered the ordinary form? Um, if you enjoyed the show, uh, if you felt like we contributed something um, to, to you, note that the Restoration Radio Network is entirely listener-supported, and you can go to truerestoration.org to learn more about our work, and there's a donate button at the bottom. You can also go to sggresources.org, which is Father Chicada's website. You'll find a number of free and paid resources there. You can support his work and his apostolate not only by shopping, 
but by hitting the donate button there as well. And um, Father, once again, thank you for your time. We know you're busy and appreciate you taking taking some time away from your schedule to chat with us. Thank you, Stephen. God bless you all. Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.